If you weren't around a couple of weeks ago, as Charlie led us through the first half of Mary's song, I'd recommend that to you. Um, I'll be starting at about verse 50 to 55, so do uh, listen in to that if you've not already. Um, let me pray for us as we begin, asking God to help us. Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so, our Father in heaven, we pray that you might nourish us this morning. Pray that you would feed us through your words. Might we understand you more, might we love you more, might we behold the Lord Jesus more, and might we leave this place excited to serve him, excited to walk with him. Might we leave this place hopeful. Amen. Um, news fatigue. <laughs> news fatigue is the idea that we simply can't cope with all the bombarding, all the bad news that's out there. We feel overwhelmed, and so maybe we, kind of feeling a bit guilty, we turn the page over in the paper, if we still read newspapers, or we, we flick over the channel, or we, we scroll, or we swipe to another app, because we can't quite cope with what we're reading. We try and forget, we try and distance ourselves, distract ourselves, you can probably associate with that. Never before have we had this stream of information from all over the world straight to our fingertips giving us real-time news as it happens. All the things. And we're not designed for that almost godlike knowledge. We're finite. But here's my um, scenario for you this morning. You find a scratch card on the floor and you win the lottery, and more than that even, you win an infinite amount of money and ability and wisdom to put the world to right. You have all the resources you need. What would you do? What would your plan be? What would you do to make the news a bit better at 10 o'clock in the evening? as you put the telly on? What would you do to reduce suffering and fear and pain? You can't just kind of magic it away, but you need to put things in place. What would you do? What would you do to make life a bit more like what it's meant to be like? You've got all the resources in the world to change the world. How are you going to do it? And the question is relevant because it's into that kind of context, that kind of bad news context, that this first Christmas comes and we see something of the answer to the question, to the hypothetical. We see something of what God did. Now Mary's situation as she sings this song, and we started it a couple of weeks ago with Charlie, is that God's people are suffering. This is not a pleasant place to be at the time. If newspapers existed, they'd be full of bad news. They're living under the heavy rule of Rome. It's an occupied territory. The land is not theirs. They are paying their taxes to another just to be allowed to live in their houses, just to be allowed to live in their towns and cities. And so life for Mary and the other faithful people of God will not have been easy. They would have been fatigued, if I can put it like that, by all the bad news. And so as Mary sings... She sings into that kind of a bad news context. But she sings not a song of despair or lament, 
but she sings a song of hope. It's not so much what's the world coming to, but what's coming into the world. And she sings this revolutionary, paradoxical, countercultural song, a song that bubbles over again and again and again with hope. A song that describes God's merciful work, his merciful actions in his world for his people. That even though there is suffering, even though it looks like it's all gone wrong, she is hopeful. She knows he is not distant and he is not far off. He is not uninterested. But he's at work and he's faithful. And even though it's been maybe 400 years of silence, he's not forgotten his people. God has a plan to put the world right again. Again, Charlie mentioned it, but I want to press in because I think it's important. Um, Mary's words are deliberately and definitely shaped by various songs that have gone on before in the Bible. But particularly, perhaps, Hannah's song in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 2 is not plagiarism, but she's kind of riffing off Hannah's words. And that really matters for us. We've not looked at 1 Samuel for a while. So let me just give you a bit of a reminder. You can maybe scribble it down and have a look later if you like. But Hannah was the, the mother of the prophet Samuel. And it seems she was unable to have kids naturally, but the Lord supernaturally granted her children, granted her a son, sorry, Samuel. And he was an important prophet at the time, not just for the words that he spoke, but he was an important prophet because he anointed kings, King Saul and particularly King David. And there are loads of similarities between the two women and between the two songs that they sing for us. And I think we're meant to join the dots. Um, both of them were childless. Both of them were given miraculous children. Both of the children were dedicated to the Lord. And both women sing what I want to call a prophetic song of praise. Back in 1 Samuel, Hannah will sing of a coming king, King David. And he's going to be the one, she sings, who will unite Israel. He will be the one who will give them rest from their enemies. He will be the one who will bring God's people together and give them peace. <coughs> Hannah sings of the Davidic covenant to come. And then Luke, ah, Mary sings of the greater son of King David. She sings of the one who will establish the kingdom forever. She sings of the one who will initiate the new covenant, who will bring true, perfect peace of the age of the Spirit when God's people will, God's Spirit will come and live within his people and give them new hearts, meaning they can keep the covenant. So in one sense, Mary's song almost fulfills what Hannah's song began. Because Mary sings of Jesus. And maybe we missed that, but God's people were waiting for this true Davidic king and they read Mary's songs and, and their pulse would begin to race. Oh, God's not forgotten us. He, he is the one we've been waiting for. I've looked down, you get um, at the start and the end of my little section, 5055, you get this idea of mercy and generations as bookends. So verse 50, you see his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. And then 54 to 55, he has helped his servant Israel remembering to be merciful again to Abraham and his descendants forever. So she looks back with thankfulness to what God has done, like a fountain pouring out mercy after mercy after mercy after mercy, including to her, 
And then because she looks back with thankfulness, she can look ahead with hope. Because it's a promise to his descendants forever. Even though the news is bad, even though it seems confusing and life hurts, because of of what God has done, she can look ahead with hope. Let's dig in. I think we can split it into two. Um, I've tried to. You know I love twos. Um, So 50 to 53, uh, God's mercy shown to those who fear him. And then 54 to 55, God's mercy shown forever. Um, 50 to 53, God's mercy shown for those who fear him. And before we begin, I'm going to go to two slightly technical points. But again, I think they really matter. So try and stick with me. I think they'll be important. Um, Firstly, our first slightly technical point is the way they've translated 50 to 55. You would be forgiven in thinking this is only a looking back thing. This is only Mary looking back to what God has done. But in the original language, the tense of these verbs that Mary uses is, is the aorist tense. Okay, you can impress your friends at family at Christmas parties with that. It's the aorist tense. And the reason that matters, and it does matter, is that this particular tense tells of something that is finished and definitive and completed, but it's got ongoing implications. So it's not just the thing that's happened in the past, but it's a thing that points us ahead as well. So you get it often in the Bible in different places. There's a really famous one you might remember in Romans 8 verse 30. I've said this before, so hopefully you're listening. But remember, he says, Christians, those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So you've got predestined, called, justified, and glorified. But predestined, called, justified are all in the past. If you are a Christian, that has happened to you already. But you've not been glorified yet. That's still to come. And yet Paul will use the same tense for all four of them. He is so certain that you will be glorified if you are the Lord's. And he can say it in a sort of past tense almost. That make a bit of sense. Give me a rough nod if it does. And he shakes the head. We're nodding, that's good. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, as Mary sings in the aorist tense, she looks back to what God has done, but as she does so, she prophetically sings of what he will do as well. It's not just a kind of history lesson through the scriptures this morning. But no, his track record in the past will show us why we can have hope for the future. But you see why it matters? Not just a backwards thing, it's a forward thing as well. Secondly, second bit of technical, stick with me, we're almost there. Do you see, it is to those who fear him, fear the Lord, verse 50. And it's striking, in Luke's Gospel, fear of the Lord comes up again and again and again. You get it, as I say, 1 verse 50, before Jesus, even born, his mercy extends to those who fear him. But then beautifully, you get it at the very end of the Gospel as well. It's almost acted out to the extreme of what fear of the Lord means and why it matters. Do you remember, it's on the cross as Jesus' lifeblood is ebbing away. Do you remember one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him? Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he says, since we are under the same sentence. We're punished justly. We're getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. 
And so he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, truly, I tell you today, you'll be with me in paradise. Even at the very end, mercy shown to those who pour themselves out on the Lord, who, who fear him, who look to him. And I don't know, maybe that's you this morning. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you're someone just looking in on the Christian things. Maybe you're a guest and you've been dragged here. Maybe you're an almost Christian or a half Christian. You're just not quite sure where you stand with stuff. You're just here because it's Christmas. It's that time of the year. Friend, can I say, fear him. Fear the Lord. Fear the one who made you and turn to him for mercy because he loves to show mercy to those who fear him. I mean, look at his track record. Mary sings it for us. You see God mercy after mercy after mercy. Let me, let me pick out some of them through verse 51 onwards. Um, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. And we don't know for sure, as Mary sings, what she's thinking of. In but maybe in her heart, as she praises, she has in mind the Tower of Babel. Do you remember Genesis 11? The people said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we make a, make a name for ourselves, otherwise we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord's response, the Lord scatters them from there over all the earth and they stop building the city. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. Or maybe, uh, verse 52 again, he has brought down rulers from their thrones but has lifted up the humble kind of rulers as the Lord brought down from their thrones as we look back in the scriptures? Maybe Daniel 4, maybe Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man on the planet at the time. As he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said proudly, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken away from you. You will be driven away from the people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge the Most High is sovereign over all. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. God brings down the proud. I was reading a few weeks ago, even in Babylonian sources, they're finding more and more evidence. This wasn't just a metaphor. This literally happened. He has brought down rulers from their throne. Or lifting up the humble, maybe Joseph before Pharaoh in Genesis. Uh, Genesis 41, he interprets the dream. And then Pharaoh says, since God has made what is known to you, there's no one discerning and as wise as you. You shall be in the charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. I will put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. It's the blink of an eye. And suddenly, he's the prime minister. He was in punishment, in poverty, and look where he is now. He was in the dungeon, and now he is directing Egypt. He's lifted up the humble. 53, he has filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich empty away. One commentator says, often the social circumstances of the powerful make them independent of and insensitive to God and their fellow humans. And so he fills the hungry with good things, maybe God's people going to the promised land, rescued from slavery, on their way home. And in the wilderness, God provides for them. Psalm 78, he, 
gave a command to the skies above and opened the doors of the heavens. He rained down manna for the people to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. And he sends the rich away empty, maybe Genesis 31. Laban going after Jacob to take back his wealth and he returns empty-handed. But we don't know in one sense. But you get the point. Mary's words as she sings, as she looks back to what God has done, to how God works, and you see her singing the history of how God turns the world on its head. The proud, the powerful, the rich. They are scattered. They are humiliated. They are hungry. And it's the hungry and the humble who are lifted up and who are blessed. It's not as we would imagine, though, is it? It's, it's topsy-turvy. It's unexpected. Oh, man, a bit. 54 to 55, look at how her praises continue. Second point, God's mercy shown forever. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. I think particularly in mind, you've got the rescue of God's people from Egypt. She's singing about here. He, he remembers them in that he hears their cries, and so he, he draws them out of Egypt. And he protects them and he provides for them and he pardons them even and takes them to the promised lands. But then the song entirely hangs off the, the way that it ends, the final little kind of ditty at the end. It's a promise to Abraham. Again, scribble it down, but Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, we see this. Foundational chapters for the Bible, vast swathes of the scriptures kind of hang off this promise, this idea to Abraham. Remember, God promises an old man called Abraham and his old wife called Sarah, who have no kids. And he says, I'm going to give you a huge family. And I'm going to give you a place to live. And I'm going to make your name great. And you're going to be a blessing to the earth. And, and even more than that, you're going to be a blessing to the earth forever. There'll be a, an eternal sense in which you will be a blessing. I mean, Sarah laughs. But actually the promise is worked out. And you see, it's not just a promise for the there and then, for Abraham and Sarah to have a big family and a nice place to live, but it's a promise for here and now. Because it's a promise that's fulfilled in Jesus. Mary is singing about the baby in her womb who will be the fulfilment, the promise to Abraham. And as she sings to us, this promise to Abraham is in mind, this promise to, the, to Isaac and to Jacob and to the kings and to the prophets. And there she is with this tiny baby in her tummy. And God is answering those prayers. This is the one they've been waiting for. This is the one whom it all hangs off. And so because it's the aorist tense, she's not singing in the imperfect, she's singing in the aorist. And it's not just looking back, though. She's looking ahead to what this tiny baby will do, what God will continue to do. His track record shows what he will do in the future. And so you turn the pages in Luke, and what do you see? You see the self-righteous Pharisees at the top of the tree who, who are powerful. Everybody hangs off their words, and they oppress others. They are the religious elite, and they try and catch Jesus out. And what happens? He just sends them away humiliated, humbled. Or, or the rich ruler who is confident of his own righteousness. He thinks, God has blessed me, I must be good with the Lord. 
And what happens? He's sent away. Because he's missed the main thing. He's missed what it's all about. And instead of these people, the kind of pinnacle of society at the time, those at the top of the tree, you've got Jesus saying, no, no, let the little children come to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as them. Or you've got tax collectors and so-called sinners. You've got the despised. You've got the people who knew they were not okay. You've got the hungry and the humble. And indeed, he was born hungry and humble. And he takes on flesh and he gives up the glory of heaven and he is born in the back of beyond and and in an animal feeding trough of some sort. And it's topsy-turvy and it's not what we'd expect and it's not how you would change the world if you had infinite powers. That be your plan if you'd not read this already? Probably not. But that is the kingdom of God. Is God doing things in a way that we wouldn't expect? Doing things in a way that maybe are even a bit weird when we think about it. What does this mean for us? Firstly, I think it means when we sing, Mary, did you know? Kind of the answer is yes, a bit. Yeah, I did have a kind of an idea of some of the stuff that was going to happen. There's nothing really wrong with the song in one sense, apart from it being overplayed in December. But Mary did know quite a lot, I think of what Jesus was going to come and do because she knew the history of her people and she knew how God works and so she knows what he will do he works in ways we don't expect but more seriously a couple of points to sort of ruminate on if God works in this kind of way in ways that we don't expect okay if he flips things on their head and if our king is going to be the kind of king we didn't quite expect as well then I take it his people will be the kind of people we don't quite expect. Which more to make us ponder, are we happy to be those kinds of people? Are we good with that? Because of how our God works, because of what he is like, we are to be a weirdly countercultural people. To put it bluntly, do we long to be the proud and the rich and the powerful? Or are we okay with being the poor and the humble and the hungry? And I've said weirdly, because as a friend puts it, we need to recapture something of that weirdness. We are meant to be weird because of the way our God works. He does things weirdly in the way that the world doesn't quite get or expect. And so, friends, don't keep trying to blend in. You can acknowledge that being a follower of Jesus is, is strange, and that is okay. Any kids listening in, you know what it's like to be a bit weird at school because you follow Jesus. So do the grown-ups, but not at school. It's okay to be weird as we follow him. That's the way it's meant to be. And Mary's song calls us to not look like everyone else, but to look like him, to look like our king. It's not how he would do it, how we would do it, sorry, but it's topsy-turvy. Again, you go through the gospel and you think, okay, he's born in the wrong sort of place. He's visited by the wrong sort of people, shepherds, outcasts, unexpected. He's going to grow up and ministry will begin and he will say things like, it's not the healthy you need a doctor, but it's the sick. And He'll be followed by the wrong sort of people. There'll be fishermen and tax collectors and zealots and all kinds of randoms on Jesus' team. 
And he'll say the wrong sort of things like, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Can't be right. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Or blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Or blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. And we think, that can't be right. But you get it, those in his kingdom who follow this kind of a king will be shaped in similar kind of ways. It's all right to be weird for the right reasons. You can hold your nerve. Keep following Jesus. How is God going to change the world? Through ways that we wouldn't. From the margins and from the mess. And through normal individual believers plodding along day by day in our weirdness. Following him. And in the eyes of those around, they look in and think, well, I don't quite get it. There's something attractive there, but they are a bit weird. And indeed, we follow our king who would beautifully come and lay down all his glory and splendor and his majesty and his privilege and take on a body and give up that body in love for his people. And then in what seemed to be an absolute failure, it looks like a mess, but it's the most powerful act in all of history. Because our sin is dealt with. And he dies in the place of his people. His body is broken. His blood is shed. We're going to remember that in a second with the Lord's Supper. But it looks wrong. It looks weird. But actually it's there that he loved us and gave himself for us. It's there that our redemption is brought. Our forgiveness is won. Our freedom is accomplished. It's there that we are joined to Jesus and we cry with him, Abba, Father. Through a cross. How weird is that? It's not how we would do it. So we follow a countercultural king and we're to be a countercultural kingdom. But I want to say, as well as that, and maybe this is the elephant in the room, I don't know how that translates, forgive me if you're on Microsoft Translate, but the, the thing that we're not talking about at this point, the elephant in the room is how can Mary be so hopeful? We have to be a weirdly hopeful people. So back to the beginning, you are, whatever, reading your news on your phone. And you think, okay, I see what Mary sings, but it doesn't seem to be true. It doesn't seem to work. The powerful seem to be winning. The proud seem to be at the top. The humble are overlooked. The hungry, they're still hungry. In Mary's day, Rome was looming large over them. And and we get something of that, don't we? We we know something of that pressure. Oxford looms large in many ways. And yet still she praises. Still she is hopeful, despite what she saw, despite what she experienced. How can she be so confident and have such hope? Why? I think because she knew... She knew her God because she knew the pages of scriptures. Because she knew what he is like because of what he has done. And because she knew that him sending his son, that she sings over, means that the plan is underway. And the lowly were being lifted up. I mean, look at her. 
and the hungry were being fed good things. And the structures that oppressed and squashed and subjugated people were just beginning to be turned around again. The tipping was just getting going. The world was being turned upside down, or maybe maybe better, the world is being turned the right side up. And in 55, there's a key word, two words in our translation, and it's forever. <coughs> to Abraham and his descendants, forever. Are we still living in forever? Ah, we are which means the promise still stands, which means it's still open, which means we can, even this morning, in whatever dark stuff we're going through, we can still have hope. It's never hopeless when God's involved. And actually, more than that, it's often, very often, I think, in the real depths of the darkness that he loves to work. And so there we can be weirdly hopeful. It's there that he loves to work the most as we take bread and wine in the moment. It's there in the darkness that he brings life. I don't know what you're facing at the moment. In a room like this, or rooms like this, all kinds of things, no doubt, will be on your plate. Just the reality of living this side of this side of the cross and this side of eternity, this side of Jesus coming back. There will be uncertainty and darkness, there'll be sadness, there'll be sorrow, there'll be confusion. Maybe it's stuff that we know about, maybe it's not. Maybe it's just stuff that you keep to yourself. Maybe it's that Christmas reminds you of things that you would rather forget. Maybe Christmas is hard. But just humour me a moment. I wonder, what would Mary say to me as I feel hopeless? Maybe I'm cynical as to whether God is at work or will be at work. I think she might say to me, have you read my song? You thought about the words? You thought about me as I sang it and the situation that I was in? I think she might say, look at God's track record. Look at all that he has done. Look at his faithfulness. Look at his kindness. Look at who he is. Look at who he still is. And trust him. And I know, in all honesty at times, we might scoff at Mary's choice to sing in the aorist tense. Couldn't you just keep it a thing of the past, Mary? Couldn't it just be the imperfect? How can you be so hopeful? How can you be so certain? How can you do this sort of prophetic praise thing that points us forward with, with, with confidence? But Morton Road, I want to say this is what Advent is all about. This is Advent, as we wait for our King, however dark 2023 has been, however difficult 2024 might end up being for you, for me, for us, we wait and we watch with hope. Because one day Jesus will return. This is not all there is. And maybe it's through tears. Maybe it's despite what we see all around us. Maybe we need more of the eyes of faith. And so together with Mary, we can proclaim the greatness of the Lord. Because we know him. And we know that he has worked and he 
is at work and he will be at work bringing about his plans and his purposes. And so together we say, come Lord Jesus. Let me pray. Lord, you know each of us. You know you know what we're dealing with at the moment. You know what 23, 2023 has been like. You know what 2024 will be like. And we pray that we might know you in it all. That we might know the reality of your faithfulness, your power, your goodness. That we might look at your track record and say, look ahead with hope. Well, thank you that you do things in ways that we wouldn't. Thank you that you are putting a broken world back together. Thank you that in all the mess and the chaos, all the darkness even, you are at work quietly, quietly transforming, quietly changing, quietly renewing. Help us to be okay with being weirdly countercultural. Help us to be those who are weirdly hopeful. And so help us please to keep our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus. Thank you that one day he will come back. Thank you this world is not all there is. In his name we pray. Amen.